Welcome to Medication Talk, the official podcast of TRC Healthcare, home of Pharmacist Letter, Prescriber's Letter, RX Advanced, and the most trusted clinical resources. On today's episode, we'll be listening in as our expert panel discusses how to evaluate statin-associated muscle pain and review strategies to help patients take a statin successfully. Our guest today is Dr. Joseph Sassine from the Skag School of Pharmacy and Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Colorado Anschutz Medical Campus. You'll also hear practical advice from panelists on TRC's editorial advisory board. Dr. Andrea Darby-Stewart from Honor Health, Dr. Anthony Donato from the Reading Health System, Dr. Stephen Nissen from the Cleveland Clinic, Dr. Joseph Sugar from Primary Care 365 in Eisenhower Health, and Dr. Craig Williams from the Oregon Health and Science University. This podcast is an extract from TRC's Emerging Recommendations panel webinar. Each month, Experts and frontline providers discuss current medication therapy topics and practical recommendations to include in TRC's letter articles. The full webinar originally aired on July 21, 2022. And now, the CE information. Pharmacist Letter offers CE credit for this podcast. Please log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. For the purposes of disclosure, Dr. Stephen Nissen reports a relevant financial relationship by receiving grants or research support from AbbVie, Amgen, AstraZeneca, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Eli Lilly, Aspirion, Medtronic, Novartis, Pfizer, and Silent Therapeutics. The other speakers have nothing to disclose. All relevant financial relationships have been mitigated. Now, let's join TRC editor, Dr. Lori Dickerson, and start a discussion. And we're talking about this now because statin-associated muscle pain is often driven by the patient's expectation of harm. And Joe Sassine, if you could start us off by briefly sharing your thoughts about how patient expectations about statin muscle pain does impact their intolerance, and probably the term that many of our viewers have been seeing in the medical literature about this nocebo effect. Yeah, thank you, Lori, for that question. I think the nocebo effect is something that is um, intriguing, but I think it actually is proven in the literature. In our definition, um, scientific statement of statin and Thomas, we talk about the nocebo effect. A- and I think I, if you would just indulge a little bit to yeah. understand this, we, could probably, we have to actually probably analyze some of the source data. And it's as simple as this. It's a study called the Samson trial, which actually an, another one Another similar trial has been published and showed similar findings. But the Samson trial really, it was called an N of one trial where patients served as their own control and it was a multiple crossover trial. So they had 60, 60 patients who received um, 12 different pill bottles. And each month they received either a pill bottle that had 20 milligrams of atorvastatin to be used for a month or a matching placebo for a month or an empty bottle. And there were four of each of these spread throughout 12 months in a random order. And patients were instructed to document and measure it subjectively their muscle symptoms on a daily basis using an app on a scale of zero to 100 with 100 being the worst um, pain imaginable. And when they analyzed the results of these trials, realizing that everybody had gotten all three treatments more than once and looking at the muscle symptom data, they showed very interesting findings that patients who were randomized or when they were randomized to a torvastatin had a score of about 16, a little bit higher than 16. Those when they were randomized to 
a placebo, a matching placebo. So thinking they may have been on a statin. That went down a little bit, but it was in the mid-14, or 15s, excuse me, so marginally a little bit lower. But those were both drastically higher than the empty bottles, which were about eight. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at this, it's very, it's surprising. Why would a placebo capsule have muscle symptoms that are similar to an active statin versus empty, empty bottles that had nothing? And this is called the nocebo effect. And if you look at that actual difference, you can quote things like 90% of the symptoms that are reported with, with statin therapy, muscle symptoms, can be attributed to this nocebo effect or this actual um, image in their mind that something bad is going to happen. Nocebo comes from the Latin, which means to harm. So it's an expectation that patients are going to get harmed from, from their um, statin medicine. So I think that is important to note. Now, I also call out there's a difference between 16 and 15 because I don't want anybody to think that there are zero um, associations, uh, real associations between statin and muscle symptoms. There is an association, uh, but I think it's conflated and overemphasized and overestimated based on evidence from the Samson trial, which highlights a nocebo effect. So this does impact how we manage patients and their expectation. I think patients are engineered and um, encultured to expect harm to occur from statins, hence explaining, in my opinion, the, the nocebo effect. Yeah, I think we have to be a little bit careful here. And let me just see if I can, first of all, I see these patients, you know, in the prevention clinic, which is where I work. So often the most common cause for referral to us is so-called statin intolerance. And part of the reason why with the placebo they have symptoms is the patients are kind of spooked. You know, they've taken several different statins. They've had big difficulties with them. And they're kind of set up and primed to have adverse effects, even when they're being given a placebo. Now, we did a study, we published in a JAMA several years ago called Gauss 3, which was a crossover study, you know, designed to look at what would happen with PCSK9 inhibitors in, in, in so-called statin intolerant patients. And in that study, without getting into all the details, it looked like more about 50% of the patients uh, had symptoms on drug, you know, but not on placebo. And so I think the real number here is probably not 90%. It's mm -hmm. probably not, you know, 20%, but it's somewhere in that broad range. There's no question there are people that have real symptoms. And here's the problem that we all face. I will sit across the table from a patient who will say to me, Dr. Nissen, I've taken three or four statins. When I take them, I feel terrible, my muscles hurt, I can't walk up a flight of stairs. I will not take these drugs. And so we are confronted with the problem of what do we do mm -hmm. with somebody, whether it's nocebo effect or not, who says, I simply will not take a statin. Yes. Great point, Steve. And I appreciate that perspective too. And I think that leads us to our, the next line in our article that we said specifically for representing both of your thoughts is, is still how that patient feels. And it often leads to poor adherence. And if the patient's not going to take the medicine, then of course we have, don't have the outcomes that we want. So what we want to do um, is talk about 
different approaches that we can to have to help our patients find statin success and to stay on the statin or stick with the statin. Um, and of course, uh, we will also offer uh, our chart um, and other discussions, I'm sure, at future sessions about what non-statins could be used in their place. So let's talk about um, how to help patients uh, stick with a statin. And the first thing that we have in our article is assessing for other causes of muscle pain. And so, Joe, we talk about considering fibromyalgia, hypothyroidism, vitamin D deficiency. Are these um, the causes that you all have covered in your uh, National Lipid Association statement on this, on this issue? Or are there other things that you think you might consider in that, in that list? Yeah, I think these are the the most prevalent ones. I mean, especially hypothyroidism and vitamin D deficiency. You don't always pick up on that when you do a secondary assessment, mm -hmm. um, but these these are important secondary causes that must be ruled out. And they could actually maybe clear up some of the smoke in the background if you do fix them. Um, I, in my experience, I have picked up on some patients who are hypothyroid, clinically on treatment, maybe at the wrong dose, or you're newly diagnosing hypothyroidism, or that they are vitamin D deficiency, fit deficient. And when you replace them with appropriate therapy, it sometimes works and it sometimes does not, mm. but it still is appropriate to do. One thing that is really quite prevalent is almost obvious, change in physical activity. For some patients, and this may be more your patient who is new to starting therapy, where they may notice, they're told to you know, note if you have a change or muscle symptoms, um, present a change in muscle symptomatology to report it to your physician or your pharmacist or your healthcare provider. Sometimes patients have that because of a change in physical activity going from sedentary to something that's less sedentary. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's the only one I would add in. For the patient that Dr. Nissen described, I've seen those patients that come in and they've tried three or four statins. I don't think a change in physical activity is there, but I would do due diligence and rule out these. And then look at, um, we do actually talk a little bit about physical exertion and that statin-related pain or weakness usually affects the large muscles, like the thighs and buttocks on both sides, and that that's generally seen in the first month or so of statin use versus something uh, that's more persistent. So, Craig, I'm curious if that's consistent with uh, your teaching also. Yeah, I mean, first month, uh, it extended a bit longer than that, but it is true that it is very different. And so you say larger muscles, more proximal, even involving mm -hmm. hip and trunk, uh, and yeah, just getting a good history from the patient of what they've been doing the last week or two can go a long ways. If it's, you know, aching fingers or aching ankles and they were either weeding all weekend, then, um, yeah, mm -hmm. don't worry about it. But, um, but yeah, no, it, is, it does present very differently, and um, so most good points. You know, I have an audience question coming in here, and um, you know, Steve, I'm curious about your thoughts, and Andrea, you too, and what you do in your primary care setting. Um, this person is uh, asking if you ever draw labs to evaluate the severity of the muscle pain. It does remind me to note that we, we want to clarify in this article that we're talking about folks who have mild to moderate you know, muscle pain and not severe pain. But when these folks come in with pain, Steve, do you ever check any labs? CK, okay. et cetera. You know, look, I have been fooled a few times when somebody's, you know, people have different pain tolerance. And I've had patients that have not complained of severe pain, but moderate pain. But for whatever reason, I had a high index of suspicion and you get a, you get a CK and it's really high mm -hmm. and it can scare the daylights out of you and of the patients. So please, everybody has to recognize that although very rare, you know, uh, myositis and rhabdomyolysis do sometimes occur and will be associated with, with uh, laboratory changes in, in uh, CK. 
However, the vast majority of these patients, you could draw all the CKs you want, and you're not going to find very many of them that have an elevation. And, and if I might add something yeah, to that, one thing do. that, because um, when I have, and I've seen that too, I've seen it rarely, thank goodness. Sometimes what triggers this, in addition to a change in organ function, could be a drug-drug interaction. So um, if I had to go back to the previous question, one thing that should also be ruled out is the presence of a clinically significant drug-drug interaction, because that sometimes can uh, um, enhance this. Absolutely, Joe. And I want to actually talk about those um, in just a second, um, because those are important and we want to talk about how to manage those. So, Andrea, I'm just curious, uh, is this something that you check? And I guess one, one of the questions coming in from our audience members, too, is like, do you get a baseline CK? Um, so curious about your thoughts there. Yeah, definitely don't get a baseline CK um, on my patients, and I can't remember the last time I actually checked a CK. However, if I'm clinically concerned the patient has significant enough um, discomfort, they're somebody that I've known for a while, this is like an unusual complaint for them. I'm also thinking about things um, like polymyalgia rheumatica. We're talking about proximal muscle groups, big, um, big muscles. And so if I'm going to get labs, I may consider getting a CK along with a checking thyroid, checking a sed rate in the setting of a possible PMR. I want to underscore what has been said by Steve and, and uh, Joe. And uh, watch out for people that are on a dual lipid-lowering therapy. I've mm -hmm. seen these problems a lot with people on a statin and a fibrate, which yes. you don't see much anymore, and no reason it ever should be done, but unfortunately it still is done sometimes. Great point, you know, Joe, and we, you know, discussed that about, um, you know, what interactions we would highlight in this piece. And uh, if you see in our article, we say try to avoid interacting meds, and we list colchicine and verapamil as two examples, and also to check for other meds that can cause muscle symptoms like steroids. So, um, you know, we didn't put the fibrates and things like that here because we don't see them used in combination very often. And so, Joe Sassine, I'm curious about your thoughts on these choices of options that we've noted for interactions. I think those are smart options because of the most common ones. Um, I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that fibrates can be problematic with statins, especially gemfibrozil. Um, there right. really is no reason to ever, in my opinion, um, other than cost, but that's you're trading mm -hmm. one risk for another, um, dysfortion. Um, there's no reason to use gemfibrozil with a statin if you need a triglyceride-lowering drug. Uh, there's much safer alternatives such as a prescription omega-3 fatty acid or even phenofibrate. It might accept um, with, with some monitoring. But yeah, these are the I most common to, ones that I would call out. Mm -hmm. I wanted to mention one other thing, and that is that to be very, very careful with simvastatin, uh, which seems to have more drug-drug interactions. You know, they, there's a lot of uh, situations where the dose should be limited. Believe it or not, I still see people on 80 milligrams of simvastatin, which I try to get them off immediately. Uh, but even on 40 milligrams, you know, when, when combined with, uh, with a whole variety of other agents can result in fairly high levels with, mm -hmm. with muscle toxicity. One thing that I get asked about an awful lot, I completely agree with that, Dr. Nissen. I, I try to transition people off of simvastatin in general, but 80 milligrams is really hard to accept. Paxlovid um, can be a problem with statins, especially simvastatin. There's guidance right. by NIH on how to manage that, but that is one that um, I think we may see just a little bit more of. It seems to be a frequent flyer in the practice I'm in. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, um, we do make the point here uh, about avoiding interacting meds, which could be to, for example, not use the colchicine wrap mill or a fibrate, or it could be, of course, to change to a different statin that didn't have, you know, that was less likely to cause interactions. And we mentioned that a little bit further down in the piece. So just to make the point that either of those things could occur. And Andy, did you have something you wanted to bring up? Yeah, you were bringing up the uh, um, the issue of when to draw labs and be worried. Um, yes. I, I put this in the same box as telling inflammatory disease apart from fibromyalgia. Mm -hmm. Listen to the patient's words when they're telling you loss of function. That should scare you. When they talk, you, tell you pain, they probably need a little holiday and see what goes away. But that loss okay. of function should be check this out, get a CK. This could be a very serious thing that you want to take seriously. Gotcha. That's a great point too. Great clinical point for us I'm to hear. At, uh, yeah. Go ahead, Craig. Looking earlier for the duration comment, the first month, um, and I think I mentioned that ago. I don't know what other folks' opinions are. That's, that'd be a little short for me to kind of have my radar up. There was a really nice study of patients who have a genetic kind of variance in a drug transport that puts you at risk for statin myopathy. And of all the cases that occurred, about half occurred in the first six months. So mm -hmm. I'd have a little longer than a month as my kind of yeah. radar up. I made and, a little note there, Craig. We say in the first month or, or so, and so we might want to, uh, we might want yeah. to extend that a little bit more. So that's a great point. Yep. Other opinions if you want. But the other thing is when we were making this, I think picking our battles is something, you know, a statin for secondary prevention is a whole lot different than primary prevention. And we definitely kind of consider the, what are the benefits before we, you know, try statin number three or spend too long talking mm -hmm. to someone to something that they clearly aren't too excited about and, and talk about other options. So maybe yes. somewhere at least mentioning their statin target groups and maybe others that are, where it's not quite as critical. I'm glad you brought that up, Craig. We didn't sort of dig into that in this piece, but certainly I think we've all seen folks who have been put on a statin uh, and we're going through this whole rigmarole to get them to stick with the statin. And when we maybe calculate their 10-year risk, they maybe don't actually need a statin, right? You know? It helps you worried. It makes the decision exactly. easy for you. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Okay, so let's actually talk about strategies to help people um, uh, stick with a statin. So first we talk about setting the stage for success. And so this comes to the statin holiday. And so, Joe, we make the recommendation to help your patient take a statin holiday, to hold the statin for a few weeks, and if symptoms persist, uh, you can rule out the statin as the cause. And that sure makes it sound pretty straightforward and simple. I'm wondering if you agree with that wording or if, it's, uh, off, if it is that, that, that clear cut. Um, for patients that are bothered by statin-associated muscle symptoms, I think this is reasonable. I would the caveats I would I would maybe add, and I think uh, Craig's statement about evaluating your patients uh, and seeing their individual presentation I think is important because a secondary prevention patient who really needs lipid lowering is going to be different than maybe a borderline primary prevention patient, mm -hmm. and I say that because. If there's going to be undue delay, meaning that that holiday has a risk for being an extended holiday, um, I think there is there should be some consideration for leaning on and relying on some non-statin options that lower LDL cholesterol if possible. And I really would reserve that for your higher risk patients. I can just imagine your patient who um, recently was discharged with acute coronary syndrome, if they end up having some issues with their statin, I wouldn't want their holiday to be prolonged and I would feel compelled just as a clinician to, to provide something that lowers non-HD, lower LDL cholesterol, such as a non-statin. Um, I, I don't think that's an absolute rule, but I think it should be a consideration. Yeah. In general, I think this is a reasonable overall recommendation. I, I, that caveat is important, Joe, so I appreciate you bringing that up. And Steve, I'm just wondering about your thoughts on the statin holiday. You know, I, I don't find it very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. 
you know, uh, patients that are really programmed to get these symptoms, they're going to probably get them again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've tried all the other strategies you've talked about, you know, intermittent dosing and so on, using a potent statin like brisuvastatin does seem to work. It's got a relatively long duration of action, but I don't, I don't really do the statin holiday. For one thing is you got to keep seeing the patient back you know, during the holiday and not everybody's going to come back. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure it's a great strategy. I'm really curious about whether others actually find it useful. Andrea, what are your thoughts? Have you tried this and had success? Um, I think that a holiday can do a couple of things that are perhaps not pharmacologic, right? So we, by giving a holiday, you're acknowledging the patient's symptoms, you're working in alignment uh, with them and acknowledging what they're experiencing, trying to come up with a solution. I would agree that that um, holiday uh, shouldn't be prolonged, particularly in those patients who are at the highest risk. Um, I think that's where some of the modalities that we have available um, through patient portals, hey, follow up with me in two weeks, or I will send you a note in two weeks to see how you're doing, and then we'll make a decision rather than uh, making a patient come back in to see me in the office to discuss that um, would be a great option as well. Well, but I think that there's a little bit of the soft touch of um, communication and acknowledgement that can go with a holiday. I don't use it a lot, but if I'm really going to try and convince somebody to continue the statin, it's it's a um, a technique that I can use. Great, great insight, Andrea. Appreciate that. You know, I'm, I'm looking at uh, our our next paragraph about buy-in, and um, also our paragraph about explaining that with persistence, you've helped your patients find a statin regimen they can tolerate. And I'm wondering if, you know, that statement needs to be adjusted to say, you know, you can help them find something that they can tolerate that lowers their cardiovascular risk. To your point, Joe, maybe this statement is a little bit too dogmatic. What are your thoughts here, um, Joe Sassine? You know, um, maybe it's not too dogmatic because I think there is value in, in some statin. I do realize that the evidence is with moderate to high intensity statin therapy, depending on your patient's risk profile, but uh, some statin is better than no statin. So I'm, I'm actually not too put off by this statement. Okay. Um, I can live with it. I think that you have to interpret beyond this. And as mm -hmm. we'll probably go into further, you know, there are other options that are not daily options. It's not my first um, alternative recommendation, but I think there are other things that have been done out of the Cleveland Clinic um, that have been, right. have been mentioned to keep people on some dose of a statin. It, pro it probably is, I'm, I'm certain for most patients, that's not gonna be enough to get mm -hmm. them to a therapeutic objective, but I think right. it's, it's a good consideration. Don't throw the baby I'm, out with the bathwater. Take a little bit of a contrarian view here and say that, look, um, the word statin regimen there may not be the right choice mm -hmm. of word. You know, the evidence is just so overwhelming that it's the LDL reduction that is yeah. the, the key. And so I would say we tell patients we can find a regimen that they can mm -hmm. tolerate, you know, that may involve very little statin even no statin, but there are alternatives, and I think we should, in fact, discuss them. Yeah, I think it's always interesting, you know, when we're on this webinar and we're into this these discussions that words, words we've you know read these pieces a hundred times already in in our in our fifteen day press cycle, 
and it jumps out to me and I'm like, maybe we should take the word statin out of there and find a regimen that they can tolerate to lower their cardiovascular risk. Maybe even clarifying it as an LDL-lowering regimen. Mm -hmm. Um, Because one thing that we did debate in this statin intolerance definition is that there are people that have complete statin intolerance and some people have partial statin intolerance. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But but I think if if I do agree emphatically that it's LDL-lowering that provides a long-term benefit and a reduction in atherogenic lipoprotein, some people would argue. Um, I think that's an important point. So, I I would just like to make the point, I don't call it a statin holiday, but the proof of something is to not only withdraw it and see if it goes away, but then reinstate it and see if the problem comes right back. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you need to do that because uh, we all know that much of the time a person's muscle strain and muscle uh, aches are not caused by their statin they're taking, but they are fixated that they think it might be. Mm-hmm. And uh, consequently, uh, you know, if they kind of insist, you take them off the statin, but then if they're willing, you reinstate it a, a couple of weeks later and the symptom doesn't recur. And they realize that, especially the people that really need a statin, because there really isn't, you know, uh, you know, other good alternatives. I mean, they, we got the PK, uh, those drugs and and of course Zeti is always an option but um it uh you know it's nice to keep a person on mm. a good statin uh, but they do read things or get beliefs that you sometimes mm-hmm. have to prove are not true you know Joe Sassine, I wanted to ask you you know so let's say that you are ready to try this rechallenge and we make the statement that that uh, there are different ways that you can rechallenge you can choose a different statin uh, you can choose the same statin um, and add a low dose and titrate so uh, what are your your uh, approaches there would you recommend you know trying a different statin generally I think most people would or or rechallenging with the same statin what are your thoughts Joe I can say in general, I would probably go to a different statin, but I think that this is where including the patient into the discussion, some of them, their degree of statin-associated muscle symptoms may be to the point where they're willing to drop down the dose within the same statin or try half a tablet or work within their established regimen. Maybe if they don't want to invest, some patients were like, I don't know if I want to um, pay a, a copay for a different statin at this point. I think, so with that said, I would let your patient sort of um, help guide you. My first gut reaction is to switch after one statin to a different statin um, because I'm usually trying to work between a torvastatin and rosuvastatin um, Mm -hmm. because they give me the luxury of going either to moderate or high intensity or even low intensity if if, if all else does. One comment I'd like to make is there's some urban mythology about pachavastatin somehow Mm -hmm. that it's better tolerated. And I don't know what uh, Joseph thinks, but I think it's complete nonsense. What are your thoughts agree. about it, Joe? Yeah, I, I am not a, I'm not bought into the fact, I, I'm not bought into that, that it is a fact <laughs> that mm-hmm. there is better tolerability of patavastatin. I think you can argue that there is a different drug interaction profile with that particular statin, um, but I, I don't see a significant difference in my practice. And that's exactly why we didn't put it in the article because you know, it is expensive, and uh, we, you know, we don't have, we don't really have good evidence to say that it is uh, better tolerated. But we, we do talk about in our article about the hydrophilicity um, and my, myopathy risk. So, Craig, I'm curious about your thoughts about our wording there. There's not strong evidence that a hydrophilic statin like Prava or Rosuva has a lower myopathy risk, but it may be worth a try, especially for fewer interactions. And so, is this consistent with your teaching? 
your practice. Yeah, no, that is true. And I think uh, to the discussions, uh, uh, you know, I think I agree with Joe's point that generally I would probably switch to a different statin. Once a patient has their mind that this statin did this thing, it's fine to try a lower dose. But we've had more success switching to a different statin. And in that setting, if you want to do the hydrophilic switch, you can. But uh, I agree with Joe, too. It's nice to stay on the ones that you can titrate back up, that we have confidence in strong LDL lowering. And but 40 milligrams of Prevastatin is a whole lot better than nothing. So, but yeah, it, it is not, do not expect necessarily less symptoms just because it's hydrophilic. Again, these pumps that move statins around um, don't care too much how water soluble it is. And those of us are old enough to remember Bacol before it was withdrawn. Yeah. Cerevastatin was relatively hydrophilic. So, and yeah, yes. it clearly had problems in excess of the others. So yeah, it's mm -hmm. not, not a reliable tool in practice. Andrea, I'd like to hear from you too. What are your sort of approaches here for rechallenging? Um, you know, I think that there's, uh, again, a lot of art to this, right? So a lot of people have word of mouth uh, concerns. And when you think about that nocebo effect, um, if there's a statin that a family member has found effective and worked well for them um, or a friend, I think that's a great way to consider uh, the approach as well. Um, so I would echo the comments of our other colleagues, but uh, also, you know, find out uh, what other influences may be happening uh, for the patient in terms of their perceptions. All right, so let's briefly talk about intermittent dosing. We're almost near the top of the hour, and we make the recommendation to save intermittent dosing alternate day or twice weekly rosuvastatin or, or, or atorvastatin as a last resort. Um, these, this approach has less data, doesn't have outcome data, um, but still does lower LDL. And so, uh, Joe, what are your thoughts on intermittent dosing? You know, it's it, it's exactly as it's worded up here. It's not my preferred first alternative, but it is better than zero statin. And, and, and in my experience, I have had people that tolerate a small amount of rosuvastatin or torvastatin weekly or twice weekly. Uh, I, so I think it adds to the LDL lowering regimen, and and I think it's reasonable, but not as the sec as the first alternative. I would I would push it down the line. Great, great points. And let's uh, briefly address coenzyme Q10 because we can't talk about statin myopathy without it. And so we make the recommendation that a statement that evidence is mixed on whether it helps, but it's not likely to harm. And we say that it's, you know, worth a try. Many patients swear by it. And so Andy Donato, I know you had some comments on this. What are your thoughts about this one? Yeah, um, again, we've talked a lot about placebo tonight. I, um, I don't have any great evidence that hurts. I don't have any great evidence it helps. But if again, like Andrea said, if the patients swear by it and that makes them take their statin, I'm all for it. It just hurts their pocketbook. So mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, it does. It does hurt the pocketbook a bit. It's kind of an expensive placebo. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's all true. Um, it's all, all true. And Joe, uh, what are the what are your thoughts about this? And in terms of the recommendations from the National Lipid Association? It's exactly this. I think if you look to the evidence and look at good evidence, you're not going to find strong supportive evidence. Um, but if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If it's what That's keeps right. a patient on their statin, then then great. Yep. But I'm not going to proactively recommend it. Right. And we recommend to advise stopping it if the symptoms don't improve. There's our month or so. Craig, are you okay with a month or so here? Or do you think it would be a longer trial would be worth it for CoQ10? Yeah, no, I think it is a uh, mostly, hopefully no patients are listening to this to hear us all say this, but I think it is mostly a placebo response, but there, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of that It's a, if it's a patient that you really want to have on the statin. The thing I'll add is because, yeah, it's not inexpensive and we can't get any insurer to pay for it. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not sure it has to be a lifelong, you know, if they've been on it for three or six months, uh, 
you know, tell them we, maybe you're, we've stocked up your muscle and this stuff and we can try coming off it and see because the, these symptoms wax and wane anyway, back to the, the study that, that Joe was referring to. So I'm starting, it does need to be a lifelong commitment to expensive monthly CoQ10. Mm -hmm. even if it does. So Laurie, before you yeah. run out of time, uh, you know, I do want to get to use of combination and alternative therapies. You know, uh, giving rosuvastatin five milligrams twice a week isn't going to get robust LDL lowering, but you add azetamide to that, mm -hmm. you rosuvastatin five milligrams twice a week, and you get a pretty good effect. So there are there are ways to get around this, and I do think you know many of us. I'm sure everybody on this this call has used such a strategy. We hope you enjoyed and gained practical insights from listening into this discussion. Now that you've listened, you can receive CE credit from Pharmacist Letter. Just log into your Pharmacist Letter account and look for the title of this podcast in the list of available CE courses. If you're not yet a Pharmacist Letter subscriber, find out more about our product offerings at trchealthcare.com. Be sure to follow or subscribe, rate, and review this show in your favorite podcast app. It helps spread the word about our show and is a great way for you to let us know how we're doing. You can also reach out to provide feedback or make suggestions by emailing us at contactus at trchealthcare.com. Thanks for listening to Medication Talk.